People who wait for a filmmaking career will never have one. Without, of course, naming any names, can you think of some people in your life who are very talented, but have been waiting, and maybe it frustrates you, maybe you see the opportunity in front of them, but they won't take it for whatever reason? Um, yeah, absolutely. Mostly colleagues. I won't even say friends, but just people that you run into. But what I've, under, what I've come to realize is that, particularly those filmmakers that come out of film school, like you're not gonna have a crew of 30 on your first, your next film. You know, they come out with these great thesis films and they wanna get their feature made. But in this, in this age of independent filmmaking, no one's gonna give you a million dollars to do your, your thesis film. And when I don't see them working or trying to, to kind of start from scratch, whether it's a short film, um, whatever it is, to continue to, continue to do the craft until you get that. I'm not saying it's not possible, but I'm really blown away by filmmakers I know that have a great thesis film from film school and are waiting to make their feature film. I'm like, why aren't you doing something now? You know, I don't want to shoot something on my phone. I don't want to shoot something with a, with a three-person crew. I'm like, what are you waiting for? But it's, it's not a, 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 it's not something I can tell people. They have to figure that out on their own. But if you've been 10 years now, and I know filmmakers that are 10 years out of film school still thinking they're going to get $3 million to produce their first film based off their thesis. What do you think that is? Is it that they think that they're at a different status level? They don't need to do that. They, they want people to, they want to have investors? I think it's a, a combination of that. And also it's a combination of people in this industry. I think everyone looks at their trajectory going like this, you know, and it doesn't. You started with a thesis and you have a crew of 30 and you have all those millions of dollars worth of equipment that the school provides for you. You get out. Do you really want to shoot your, your short film on your iPhone? The ones that work do, you know, but the ones that, because that's, that's ego, you know, and in my experience, having done as much as I've done, what I've found is there's certain film schools and I've hired film school students, you know, and, but the one I will say, I won't say the ones where they have the least discipline, but the ones with the most discipline have come from the Los Angeles film school. They have come with a discipline to work and it didn't matter how good their thesis film was. If my crew was smaller, whatever, they wanted to work, they wanted to learn, and they wanted to produce. I know there's a lot of backlash on millennials that, oh, they don't want to work and things like that. I haven't always seen that. I've seen it, it can be across many different, you know, Generation X. I've seen different work ethics. Do you think there's, is it generational or is it um, a mindset? That it, I, it's definitely a mindset. I don't find it generational at all. If this is what you want to do, you're going to do it. And you're going to do it as, as often as you possibly can. The thing I say to people who want to be writers, you got to be writing every day. If you want to be a director or, or a filmmaker, you should be trying to make something or shoot something every month, every week if you can. But at least every month, you know, it's a craft. It's like building a deck, right? Your first deck you build is not going to maybe be as, as fancy or as good. But the more you do it, the better you get at it. And filmmaking is no different. So I don't really subscribe to that philosophy as, well, I'm waiting for this. I'm waiting for the right money. I'm waiting for, I'm waiting for the right people. I'm waiting. No, I'm not a subscriber to that. You have to just kind of go forward. If that's all you're banking on, though, is that all you have is your one script that you want to make perfect, um, you're going to have a difficult time. Do you think the DIY mindset 
because there's certain people that are just like really self-generate, like mm -hmm. they just they rely on themselves. Absolutely. They don't expect any handout and they just want to do something themselves. Whereas there's others that maybe they've had more coddling or whatever it is. You think that there's a clash? You think they clash sometimes, those two mindsets? Only on a panel. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, because to me, it just comes down to the work. Can you produce? You know, uh, so it, it can to that sense. I think you, we, we, there are certain filmmakers we follow and we see their career and we try to model. I think filmmakers try to model their careers after other filmmakers. That's not something I've ever done. Um, I've never looked at someone and said, this is how I'm going to do it like they did, you know, or I'm going to do this and this is what's going to happen. My thing has always just been, how do I get my stuff made right now? You know, and if I wrote a $10 million script, I would have it, but that wouldn't be the first thing I would try to get made. I would have a $50,000 script. I would have a $10,000 script. I'd have different things. What do I have? What can I do right now? You know, and then if that does take, what do I have? back here that's ready to go. While we were setting up, you said you had a couple friends that were always calling you for filmmaking advice mm -hmm. or whatever, which prompted an idea? Yeah, I, well, they both, it was in the same week, they were calling me up, saying, hey, can you meet me so we could talk about some things? I'm doing my film and I need some advice. I said, sure, man. So I would always usually just try to give advice based on a story or an experience, um, not necessarily this is what you have to do because every film is going to be different. Um, and in that week, these two friends of mine were like, you really should write a book about all your experiences, man. You've done a lot. And I was in a place back then where I'm like, yeah, I've done a lot, but I'm not where I want to be. Um, so who's going to listen? Who's going to care? And they're like, well, we would, we would care. <laughs> like, he's like, there's a lot of people that you would inspire just knowing that you're still doing it, even though you're not at that place that you want to be at, but that you still continue to work. And you always have a lot of, you have a lot of experience. So why not put it into a book form? And I said, well, we'll see. And then, so I kind of played with the idea for a little while. And then about three years ago, I got with a uh, writing group and started sharing some chapters with them. And they really encouraged me to, to keep pursuing it because it is quite a journey. I'm not a connected guy. I'm not a Hollywood guy. I, I grew up in Wilmington. It wasn't a place that bred great artists. <laughs> there was nothing really inspiring around me. Um, I just loved movies. That, and I, I thought I wanted to be an actor, but, but I found that I was a director. And so when I made that change, things, nothing happened for me as an actor. But as soon as I made that change to be a director, things started happening. So, um, so yeah, that's kind of the long answer. But yeah, I started writing a book called Stereotypical, my filmmaking journey from the harbor to Hollywood. And it should be out in October. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, hopefully people will get a value from it. When those two friends sort of threw that idea out there, where, where do you start? Because I'm sure you know, we all see our life in one way and other people can see it from another and think it's either really interesting or mm -hmm. whatever. How do you like? Well, I had initially started at the theater academy that I met my wife at because that's when I first started directing you had to take a directing class there and my attitude was so like against it like I didn't want to direct a play I was there to act right and I found uh we had to do this project for the directing class I just half-assed and my I found the letter for my grade on that that the the teacher wrote to me it was basically saying you show the most promise of any person in this classroom as a director he's on I, but you haven't done the work i can't give you you know a grade other than this 
but he's, I'm really disappointed. You think and talk and speak like a director. <laughs> and I was like, and I was like insulted by the thing. I'm an actor. And, um, and so I, I ran into that teacher on a few occasions and, you know, I'm obviously directing a lot more now. So, and I don't act at all in, in my stuff for the most part. I'll have a cameo here and there. Um, but, uh, that's where I started. And then, and, you know, it's weird when you start writing something that personal, other, it triggers other memories. And then I remember producing something when I was seven years old, um, in my garage. It was a show for the kids in the neighborhood. And so that's where I started the book with, uh, how that came about. That was the first time I had produced anything. And I, I was in it and the trials and tribulations of that, of acts quitting and then coming in at the last minute and I had to do everything. Um, but it happened, <laughs> you know, I actually produced a little show like the little rascals. That's, that was my inspiration. The little rascals. They always, they had such a can do attitude about anything. They had their own, they had their own fire department. You know what I mean? So <laughs> it was like things like that. Like it was that kind of spirit to it. And I try to keep that spirit in when I'm up against a, uh, some great odds and in, in producing something. Where do you go to uh, write these chapters? Are you writing at home? Um, I used to, no, I used to go to the Aroma Cafe in Studio City. Um, the reason that place was important to me was when I moved from Wilmington to Studio City, I was paying $400 a month for a studio on that street on Tahunga. And I would get home late night bartending. I'd walk my dog at 1.30 in the morning, which you couldn't do in Wilmington where I grew up. <laughs> and I, that little cafe was there and I would go there to write. And there was a sense that I had made it already. I was out of Wilmington and I was living in Studio City, a place that was so Hollywood, it called itself Studio City. And I was writing and I just, at that point, I felt like I had made it. And so that place was that for a while, but now I, I kind of bounce around. We moved out of that area um, about three years ago. And so now I just bounce, sometimes it's at home, you know, uh, it just depends. I carry a notebook with me. I'm always writing. So, and it's just translating my notes. Um, but I will write pretty much anywhere I can. I'll take my laptop with me or I'll have a notebook with me all the time, no matter what. And when you started writing those chapters, did it reframe your life for you in any way? Did you look at yourself differently? Um, it helped me get out of the place I was in um, after doing my seventh film. And I was kind of wounded after my seventh film because I had stopped and started so many times even before that. And then nothing happened with that one. And so I was kind of like, why am I still drudging along? Which is what I felt like I was doing. And all the negative experiences of getting seven feature films were like kind of like right here. Whoops, I don't mess up the mic. Right here. And as I was writing the book and speaking of the experiences, the negative stuff was very small. It was all really fun and inspiring and, 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 um, a reminder to myself of why I was doing this. So the book was very cathartic for me in that sense. Um, one of the chapters is, uh, on 2010 at the beginning of that year, my, my four-year-old was hit by a car and he survived. I always oh. stress that <laughs> he survived and he's, and he's doing well. He's, he's 14 now. Um, but that's how my year started and it ended with me losing my house. So, and in that time I released my third feature film, but two films that I was counting on 
the financing fell through and that's why I was I lost my house because I was counting on those two films and I had gambled pretty big um, and I thought I was gonna lose my family at that time but luckily oh. the 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 wife um, was uh, very supportive even in that time again just setting up I just jokingly said something that you said should be on a t-shirt and that is Call me when you make your second. Call film. me when you make your second. Yeah, <laughs> someone does a first film. I'm like, okay, give me a call when you do your second film. You know, because if after your first film you say, oh man, yeah, I got to go through that again, then you're a filmmaker. You know, but I say that because in the films that I've done, a lot of my lead actors have gone off. A lot of my stuff's ensemble, right? So a few of my leads, almost all my leads of all my feature films had gone off to write and direct their own films because I had shown them how to pull the rabbit out of the hat for little money. Because at that time, no one thought you could make a movie for $50,000. And I was doing that and I was getting them at Blockbuster. I was getting them on Redbox and getting them on Netflix. So these actors would go off and use my connections to do their thing. But not, and some of them did it right in the sense that they started their process. Some of them didn't do it so right and they just copied my process. But none of them went off to make a second film. You know, so I always have told actors in particular and some of them had asked me to direct their thing and I'm like, why are you doing this? Well, I really want to showcase my talent with this. I go, okay, that's not a reason. To, it's a vanity project. It's not something I'm interested in. I go, if there's nothing personal, then why, why are you going to do this? Because that's going to reek of vanity as soon as you put it out there. So, and most of them were, and they never went to go do a second one because it's a lot of, you gotta, I mean, look, uh, your audience knows, you know what it takes to make a feature film, right? And if you're just doing it to showcase your acting talent, um, it's, it's, that's a hard thing to motivate, to, to keep you motivated throughout the process, you know, um, and then also after you get past releasing it and your friends and family are supportive, where is it now? You know, did it go on to get distribution? Did it go on to a festival that, you know, wasn't a special, what I call a specialty film festival, you know, where you know everybody involved and they're like, they want to support the film and that's great. But um, not very few of them have gone to go do a second. Actually, none of them have gone on to do a second feature. And most of the people I know that have that thought they wanted to be filmmakers after the first one, that was it for them. And they're just like, I don't know how you did it. How do you do it raising your family and do it? I said, well, I enjoy both. I don't, I love making movies. I love being a family guy. I love my being a husband. I love being a dad. So to me, it's not, I don't want to say the word's hard because it is hard, but it's not labored. And so you have a family, you have two children, mm -hmm. and you also work. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I have been on a dry spell. Although I will say this month is the first month in a while I'm making more money as a, a writer-director than I am in my job. And so that was that was a really good way to start August. So this is That's in great. August. Yeah. So um but uh but yeah, I have to I have to maintain my my financial responsibilities to my family. But the job that I have um, allows me to do both. It allows me to keep pursuing my, as a, I have a flexibility in that. Um, and so I'm able to provide for my family and, and, and do that and pursue filmmaking. You know, that's helped me keep my sanity. 
Have you ever wanted to have a non-flexible job? Because I know there's always that bait, like, hmm, should I take this like more steady or not even steady paycheck, but. No, I, I, I'm not a nine to five guy. I'm not a nine to five guy. I knew that very early on. Um, yeah, I would have friends that would say, you know, I don't know how you do it without the security of, you know, retirement or healthcare that luckily my, my wife's job, she has the healthcare, so we don't have to worry about that. But I said, there is no guarantees, man. I go, there are no guarantees. I go, I'm sure a lot of people that worked at a lot of these financial institutions that have gone, gone down, all thought they had security. There's no such thing as security. There's no security in being an artist, you know, and somehow we, we, we pay the, the bills every month and still pursue. It's just having courage to do that. Most people don't. And I don't blame them, but you have to have that <laughs> if you want to pursue your art. And there's a lot of jobs in LA that are like these flexible jobs that actually pay a decent wage. Mm -hmm. You'd be, you know, I think oh, yeah. people there's don't realize. Oh yeah, all these micro economy. People make it work and make it hustle. Mm -hmm. You know, it's. I always say, I go, look, if if you come to LA to pursue acting or filmmaking or whatever your passion is, if it's important to you, you find a way. If it's not, you'll find an excuse. Do you regret not making films earlier in your career, or do you think it all happened in the right time? No, I. You know, that's a hard one to answer. Because I feel like I'm not, a, I'm not a, a believer of luck, but I am a believer in timing. And I will say I feel like my career has been a combination of being too early or too soon. Um, I, wish I, had, I wish I was that guy that was making movies at seven years old, you know. So by the time I had gotten to 26, which is when I made my first film, I would already have been a skilled filmmaker. But I'm starting at 26 just learning. So in that sense, yes, but um, where my life, the trajectory of my personal life, I don't know would have been the same. You know, when I was in high school, uh, there was a huge omen. Um, when I was in high school, there was a teacher there. I wasn't particularly good at anything at that point. Two of my best friends had a cable access show and I would help them with that. And the teacher told them, and I went to an, uh, a predominantly affluent white private school. I didn't grow up there, but that's where I went to school. So one of their counselors said, uh, USC is doing this thing, this film school introduction. Would you guys want to go? And they're like, yeah, Ken, you want to go with us? I go, yeah, I'll go with you guys. So we all went together. And the odd thing was, like, these are two white guys. I was the only Latino pretty much in the school. And we go to this USC thing, and it turns out it was for Latino students. So it was the first time they were the only two white guys in this entire group. And then I was there. And there was a huge, like, <laughs> the universe telling me, go to USC film school or do something this way. And I just wasn't in the right frame mind. I was a very angry and insecure person at that time. And, um, but I look back on that and I tell that story in the book too, that there was a huge thing right there. And we had to get into groups and do pitches. And I was just in my element and my two buddies were like, man, we didn't know you even had like ideas and all this. And this. <laughs> I go, I didn't know either, man. I just felt so, I felt like I had a community, you know, and, and, I was being validated, not, and I was never in search of that, but there it was. But I was just too, um, like I said, I was in a very negative space in high school throughout the duration, so I just wasn't open to it. But had I done that, I wouldn't have met my wife. And that was, you know, that's the luckiest thing that's ever happened to me. You know, I haven't had no luck in film. Everything's been through hard work and just w w sheer will. But meeting my wife was pure luck, <laughs> you know, and having that happen. 
So I don't have regrets in that sense. You know, do I wish I had more experience going in my first film? Yes, but I don't know that I would have had the same, same uh, journey. You know, and I'm I look back on my journey, especially writing the book, and I'm really kind of proud of it. <laughs> do you ever feel thankful for the anger you said you had in high school because that prompted you to want to tell really powerful stories that aren't vanity projects? No, because it wasn't, high school was very, um, uh, how do I say, it was like a non-creative time in my life. It just was, uh, it's not something I even look back fondly. It wasn't until I got to the theater academy, um, which was a year after I graduated high school, that I went to this acting academy where I was able to just break myself down and it was all for acting, but it helped me rebuild myself and be somebody who was creative and who had things to say. So that anger outside of high school turned into, I'm not happy. How do I change this? Let me try this. And then to go to an acting academy where you're the normal one. <laughs> you know what I mean? So that was, but I was just so inspired by everybody there because everyone was so brave. There were people there who were broke you know, pursuing their dream. And so that place uh, was such a great place for me creatively to learn the language of acting, which helped me with actors to this day. I mean, I'm, I'm proud to say I'm an actor's director. I get that comment from the actors I work with all the time. They all say, you know, you just speak our language. And that's because I know the language. I went to an acting academy. I'm a classically trained actor who doesn't act. <laughs> I, I make movies, but I know how to speak with them. And I think, Going back to an earlier question, you said, that's the advantage I think I have over film school students who don't learn that, you know, because it's, to me, it's the art of communication. You know, you can have this vision, you can have this talent, but if you can't communicate it, you gotta be able to communicate it to your crew and to your cast. That's my talent. You know, when you have two kids that have asked you a million questions a day growing up, I don't have all those answers, but on set, I have every answer. When that acting teacher gave you that note, that or wherever, they gave you that grade and said like you would make a great director mm -hmm. out of anybody in this class, and you said you were hurt by it or offended. Well, I was, I was just so like, no, I'm an actor, I'm not a director. You know, like I, I didn't, I, I, didn't I took it like a negative. You know, I didn't, again, there was a second time the universe is telling me, <laughs> hey, Ken, look, you're, you're a director, you're not an actor. You know, and me ignoring that. You know, and it wasn't until I got out of the academy and me and the wife were going out on things that were very uninspiring and there weren't a lot of Latinos producing anything or writing anything or even there weren't that many of us in terms of actors. So we're like, what do we do? We just went to school for this. We started writing, directing and producing our own plays. And that was out of necessity, but I was starting to enjoy directing more than I was being on the stage. You know, because directing, my instincts were just very fluid and I knew exactly what to do and when to do it. I knew how to communicate something, I knew how to block something. When I was an actor, I was constantly judging, you know, is this, is this genuine? Is this authentic? Is this, am I, you know, I wasn't, I, I didn't know how to get there as an actor, you know, um, but I knew how to get other actors there. Can you just give us some practical tips on, um, maybe you call it the actor's language or the director's language mm -hmm. with actors? For me, it starts with trust and it starts with the audition process. I don't use casting directors. I've done seven feature films, never used a casting director. I do not find the casting process brings out the best. I think it, it, 
it rewards good auditioners, but not good actors because they're two different things, right? They're, there are actors that are good auditioners and there are actors that are good actors that are terrible auditioners. My process eliminates that um, because someone could blow an audition, but if I see something, if I see their humanity, and I don't mean them struggling with being nervous, I mean just there's something deeper that they want to express and they can't do it in the two or three pages, I will bring them back for a callback and I will put actors together and see how, they, how much they give each other. And that's normally how I, how I will work an audition, especially in a callback. I run it like an acting workshop. I let the actors play and then I want to see who can take direction. But essentially, I'm trying to get who they are and it's just part of it is just instinct and my business has always been people. So, and, and having the intuition to go, this is going to work with this, you know, and getting them to talk to each other, play tennis with each other back and forth. Because then if you have an actor comes in fully prepared and they kill the audition, and then I put them in a scene with somebody and they're doing the exact same thing they did in the audition, then I know that's all they're going to give me. And that's not enough. There has to be more. I try to make the actor feel comfortable and confident embodying the character by using their own emotional experience. What's the difference between having a big ego and a strong ego as a director? Oh, that's a great question. Um, well, having a big ego comes from insecurity, right? Having a strong ego is being confident in what you're doing, but you don't have to beat people over the head with it. Um, one thing I said with my latest film is I'm not trying to beat people over the head with my film. I'm trying to break their heart with it. And it really comes down to approach, but it really essentially is about, it's, it's like a fine line between arrogance and confidence, right? And, and people know the difference, but the problem is directors are fed, they're fed that ego on set, whether they know what they're doing or whether they don't, they're fed that because people just assume that they know what they're doing. But for me, I don't like to manipulate actors. I don't feel I need to manipulate actors. I don't need to cause havoc between two people to get a performance because the audience knows only what I show them right here. They don't know all this. They don't need to know all that. So um, to me, confidence is not even the right word. If there was a better word for confidence, I would just say being able to communicate your vision in a very clear and concise way. If you know how to do that, you don't need to, you know, uh, be that guy that, that is flamboyant. But a director to director is one thing. An actor to a director, they're never going to call a director on that. You know what I'm saying? Whether he's arrogant or confident, a director is never going to get called out on that on a, a professional set. Everyone assumes that they're there because they're supposed to be there. So you have this kind of advantage. But where it really starts to boil down is how you communicate with the actors. And when my crew starts to engage with what we're shooting and they're not just doing a job, then I know we have something. I always go by the crew because they see a million things, right? They see a million movies. They're on sets a million times. But if I see them engaging and watching the actor's performance, then I'm like, okay, well, we got something. The crew's interested. I'm like, oh, we have something here. You know, and they're, try they're trying to make it better. They're trying to take it just to make it a little bit better, you know. Um, but that is, that is essentially it. I always, I tell every filmmaker I meet, I go, there's three tenants I live by and I form them by watching other directors um, that, that didn't go on to do anything. 
And one is don't let your ego be bigger than your career. Don't make promises you can't keep, especially to cast and crew. And the last one is when it's all said and done, let or let more be said than done. Lead by example. You know, you can't, um, especially in the social media age, a lot of people can post anything about any, everyone's a producer, everybody's this or that or the other. But when you look beyond it, um, is the work there? That's what I always tell people. Don't look at the surface, look deeper. Don't be so fooled so easily. You know, you can tell the people. Someone asked me recently, you know, this guy's a producer. And I said, if he's a producer, then what has he produced? He's like, well, I don't want to ask him that. It's it'd be insulting him. I go, why is that insulting him? I go, you're only insulting him if he doesn't have anything. Right. I go, then you know. I go, I know it feels good to have someone go, I want to help you. I'm a producer. I know that feels good, but don't be fooled by that. Just ask him, okay, what have you done? I go, we get asked that question all the time. When I tell someone I'm a filmmaker, what have you done? Well, I've done this, this, and this. Where can I watch it? You can watch it here, here, and here. Oh, okay. <laughs> but if someone says they're a producer and you go, what have you produced? And they get upset and they get their ego damaged. That's because they haven't done anything. <laughs> so don't be fooled by that. What if we took it a step back and we see the difference between ego and sort of a strong sense of self in even wanting to be a filmmaker? Well, I mean, look, you have to have, a, there's a certain amount of narcissism you have to have, you know, to me it's about controlling that um, because it, 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 and there's a certain amount of maybe even arrogance to say, I'm going to make something that people are going to care about. So you have to have just a tiny bit of that. But more so than that, uh, what I say is it's, it's more of a naivety. And I think that having the naivety doing your first film is a strength. It's not a weakness because you don't know what you're up against and that's a good thing because if you knew that maybe you would never get started and maybe that would save you a bunch of time heartache and money but if this is what you want to do and you don't have all don't know what's ahead of you and you don't know what's what's involved that will drive you to the end of your film at least your first film and then when you get to the end of it you may be like wow i'm not gonna do that again <laughs> or you're gonna be like i can't wait to do that again you know, um, regardless of where it goes, if it went to Sundance or it got distribution, regardless, if your attitude after that is, man, that was hard as hell, but that was awesome. I got to do that again. Then A, there's something wrong with you and B, you're a filmmaker and go, <laughs> go, go, you know. Right. And it's okay to have it be something wrong with you because that's what it, you know, oh, it's, it's okay. There's like degrees. They say, well, artists are crazy or selfish or whatever, but there's degrees of oh, it, absolutely. you know, it doesn't have to be totally negative in that sense. It means they want no, to create something. I, I have a balance because like I said, I have a family and, and you know, I'm one of the few, you know, I'm, I'm one of the few people that I know that has a family and has done both. But that's the other question I get asked is, well, how do you do it? And, you know, I'll ask this, do you have a family? No. Do you have a job? No. I'm like, okay, you have no responsibility. You're asking me how to do it. Go, you go do it. I go, do you have one of these? And I plowed, I grabbed their phone. Go do it. If you want me to tell you how to make a million dollars, you want me to tell you how to get in the Sundance, you want me to tell you how to get in the theater, or, I don't know how to do those things. I go, um, but the fact that you're sitting there asking me when you have time and energy and a cell phone, make something. Is it going to be great? Probably not your first time out, but that's part of it, man. Like you got to do the crap to get to do some cool stuff. You know, I've done seven films. Not all of them are great. You know, but the ones that aren't great, that was my fault. <laughs> I did, no one's to blame except me on those ones, you know. 
But um, every one of them is a learning experience and every one feeds the next one. Can you paint a picture of how much work it takes to be a filmmaker? For people watching this channel, maybe they're in that similar boat, they've gone to film school, they're waiting for this like magical producer to come right. along with this check. Well, if you're doing your first film and you have a producer, you're lucky enough to have a producer, that's great, but you will be producing as well. Like there's no getting around it. You're not gonna be just directing. Um, let's assume you didn't write the script, okay? Let's say you partnered up with somebody. Um, what you can what you can expect is just an all-encompassing um, uh, days of just prepping. And it's not a thing, get a camera and go shoot. I mean, you have, it, it is a lot of preparation. And that is something that I don't get, I think it's lost a lot. You know, like when I was doing Marigold, my seventh film, it would be two weeks of prep for two days of shooting, you know? so. It's making sure that you have the cast and crew, that you have the insurance, that you have the permits, that you have everything. And sometimes the person that the, the, the only one that's going to care the most about it is going to be you. Unless you have an incredible budget where you're able to pay people to care, right? You're the one that's caring the most and you, you can't drop the ball and you have to be leading everything. You cannot be behind on anything because as soon as they lose confidence in you, then your first day of shooting, it's going to be a disaster, you know, and um, so that's the big thing you can expect. It's just a lot of prep before, depending on the the requirements of your of your script and your story. But um, any little thing, if you want it to be done well, that you're going to have to put that time in. That's not necessarily directing. Why would they lose confidence in you? Um, because you can tell when someone doesn't know when they don't have. A clear vision about what you what you people will excuse you if you can't communicate your vision but they will not excuse you if you don't have a vision your cast and your crew you know and that's the thing that i always tell like you have to have a very clear vision about what you want if you don't know what you want then you're in big trouble so is that something that you learn on your feet by going through it yeah i don't think that's something you could be taught i think it's something that you have to you have to learn by doing and start small, start small. But particularly if you're a, a woman or a person of color, you're not gonna be given an opportunity to fail on a major thing. I've had several actor, actors contact me on TV shows who know I'm trying to get into TV directing and they're like beside themselves because some 27 year old on set, never directed anything, doesn't know what he's doing and yet he has an opportunity to do that. And it's usually a white male, it's usually a white male. Um, we're not going to be given those opportunities. We need to know what we're doing the day we're on set, you know, and, um, and a lot of those instances that the DP is teaching them how to do their job. You know, um, I like working with DPs cause I can learn, I learn from them. You know, I, I, that was my film school working with D DPs. I've been fortunate to work with several different ones. Um, and I learn lenses and I learn their language and they love it. They love it because I can speak their language. And I understand what a lens, what size lens does and what it's used for, how to move the camera. Um, get to know everybody's job, costume, makeup, everybody. You know, when you're first starting out, that's the advantage. You're going to have to do all that stuff anyway. It'll give you an appreciation for the people who do do those things, you know. Um, but like hair and makeup people love me because I'm not going to have them go through six or seven variations on someone's hair. I know exactly what I want. And they're like, oh my God, I love you. You know what you want. That's what I always get from hair and makeup. Oh my God, I love you. You know what you want. 
And I'm like, yeah, I'm not going to send you back seven times for seven different looks only to go back to the first thing I saw. You know, I know right away. Boom. That's going to work. That's going to work. Let's go. Sounds like having a clear vision is very important to you. Mm -hmm. That's kind of how you run your life, really. Yes. You're very, like, you know what you want, and that's awesome. Does that translate into the stories you want to tell? You're very clear on what you want to tell. I'm very clear on the emotions I'm trying to get my films to invoke in people. I'm very clear on that. Um, and I'm about 90% clear on how to do that. Uh, my fourth film, I'm not even going to say the title. It's one of my most personal scripts. But the budget, I ha kept having to compromise. And there were great moments that I had to get rid of. And I didn't know on set, I didn't know how to make the, adjust the adjustment. You're not going to get this, Ken. We can't afford it. Something that was promised to me during the shoot. So I was losing things during the shoot. You know, and so that was hard. And so... For that particular film, when I saw the trailer, I'm like, wow, we nailed it. You know, because I had to do that. I, I had that trailer cut at the very end of production because I was using that trailer to raise money for my next film. As soon as I got back, I had another meeting. And that producer was like so impressed that I had a trailer for her. And then she saw that. She's like, wait, you shot that in three weeks? I'm like, yeah. She's like, it was a five-minute meeting. Boom, I had the, I had the, the movie. But... The movie didn't do what the trailer did. <laughs> the movie didn't do what the trailer promised. And the reason why was because I, I had to make compromises and I couldn't make the adjustment to still get the emotional impact of the film that I wanted. So in pieces it works, but not as a whole. So on in that instance, there was a clear vision, but I wasn't able to make the adjustment. I wasn't able to, to, and for all my other films, I was able to do that. I was able for them to say, so Ken, this scene, uh, we can't do it the way you want to do it. You have to do something else. Okay, fine. I want to keep the emotion that this scene brings. Let me switch it. Let me fix it. Let me use what we have. I was able to do that very quickly. For that film, whatever, for whatever reason, I just wasn't able to. And I think because I was doing too much uh, with, with so little. And at your fourth film, that's very hard. You know, if it was my first film, it's easy. The ideas start coming. But your fourth film, you're very specific, right? I want this, this, this. And there's no, there's no compromise. And then you're compromising constantly on a daily basis. And you're just like, the, the heart of that film got, got gutted. But um, yeah, it, it is. You have to. I think uh, one of my improv teachers at the academy said, he's like, always, he was the one that taught me. He's like, you always have a clear vision about what you want because you will subconsciously make decisions that will lead you to that, those goals. And he's been right for a very long time. So um, he's, it doesn't mean it's gonna happen when you want it to happen, but things will start to happen. And I've had a lot of full circle moments like that, you know, and, and that have given me, uh, where I would run into a director, or a director would help, that I admired helped me with something. And I'm like, I never thought I would even meet this person. And now they're, we have emails and he's telling me, no, keep going, man, you know, do your thing. And, or meeting an actor or working with an actor that I grew up watching, like writing a script saying, this is the actor I want. We're never going to get him, but this is the actor I want. Putting it out there and knowing very clearly that's who I want, not knowing how you're going to get there. And then it get, you get there. Those little miracles are so important in filmmaking. It doesn't mean, though, your film is special. It is, has to happen for it to be made. Independent filmmaking, you need those miracles. And they happen, but you can't get too impressed by them. 
And after you, when you do your first film, you do, right? You're like, we weren't going to get this location. We got it for free. We must be going to Sundance. This film's on its way. <laughs> and it's like, but no, those things happen just from tr planning and putting it out there. Hopefully we can do this. Hopefully we can do that. Well, let's aim for it. And more times than not, those, those things have come to, to fruition. So you said your fourth film was very personal to you and you feel yeah. like for budgetary reasons or whatever, it was shortchanged. Do you ever see yourself redoing it then? Uh, yeah, I do actually. Um, I would have to change, change it up a little bit um, because the distributor owns that movie. I don't, they haven't done much with it. I think it got into Target and Walmart and that was the extent of it. I know they're trying to get all my films onto Netflix right now. Um, so I don't, yeah, I, I think I could revisit that, but I don't know. When I made that movie at that time, that's how I was feeling. I was feeling like the main character at that time. He was in a rock and a hard place and didn't know how to get out of it. Um, and only had, you know, had very little to rely on but himself. Even when you want to quit being a filmmaker, you can't? No, and I've wanted to several times. <laughs> The thing is to have such a discipline that even when you want to quit, you're still working. To give you an example, I will, my, my, <laughs> you know, I'll get a rejection, right? That I was expecting, I was expecting to get something, whether it was in a film festival or get into a, some type of program or hear from the showrunner about a possible directing gig. And I just get the email that says no, right? doesn't matter how nice it is. It's a no. <laughs> and you're just like, ah, how many of these can I take? That's it. I'm done. I'm done. And there I am writing my next script. There I am producing my next thing. It doesn't stop. You know what I mean? So I've said that a bunch of times. And the wife always says, you know, she's like, you're telling me you quit, but then you're the next breath you're talking about the next thing you want to shoot. The next, you know, she's like, I get it. She's like, but you're not going to quit. So why do you tell yourself you're going to quit? I go, I just need 24 hours to get over my rejection and then I'm back at it. But the point is to always be working. You know, if you're just writing a treatment, if you're just writing a short story, if you're, and here's the thing, I don't even consider myself, I consider myself more of a director than a writer, but I'm probably the most disciplined as a writer, you know, because it's initial, I can get the story out. You know, if I have a story to tell, I can't just get a pick up a crew and the cast and go and tell that story, but I can sit at my typewriter or my, my typewriter, my laptop, and I can type it out and I could start to see it and get excited about it. And do I know how I'm going to get it made? No, but at least it's out. And then I have another one and then I have another one. So being, I'm probably the most disciplined at writing because it's going to happen. It happens every day. It happens wherever I'm at. I have a notebook or my laptop. If I'm working on my book or my pilot or my script, my feature or my featurette, or I'm trying to finish my featurette um, that I'm producing and, and directing. Um, the discipline is it doesn't matter that I tell myself I'm going to quit. Um, my body and my mind are still working. <laughs> I think it comes to how a marathon runner is just on automatic on those last three or four miles. Like they, their body is telling them, no, we're done, but they still find whatever that is to keep going. That's how I can equate playing the long game and pursuing this craft. Where do you find the ideas for your stories? I would say a lot of my stuff is goes into like kind of the complicated, like a mentor mentee relationship or the brother relationship 
um, brothers relationship, those, those dynamics have always been a part of my life, partly because I never had a big brother, I didn't have a mentor. So I'm always investigating those things. Um, all, all the female characters in all of my movies are all very strong female characters before it became a thing to put a strong female character in. <laughs> yeah. Because the muse comes from one, and that's my wife. So all of the all every female character comes from her, so they're going to have those traits. Um, and so usually how the story, and, and I'm, an, I'm an urban director, you know, I'm in the urban genre. I make no apologies for that. I love the urban genre. That's what I grew up watching as a kid. It's what I still continue watching. I love gangster films. Um, my stuff, though, uh, comes from a place of authenticity and genuineness and also from an emotional place. I always say I go behind the headlines. So like for my first three films, I called them the Drive-By Chronicles. And I took them directly from a, a, a headline from a drive-by shooting somewhere. And then I created a story of that because we don't get that. We get the headline, but we don't know how that family has reacted to that. We don't know how they're dealing with that. We don't know the repercussions in the neighborhood of how they're dealing with that. There are so many different aspects, um, compelling storytelling. And as a Latino filmmaker, I get sometimes get shit for that. But my thing is, if you haven't watched my films, you can't judge me just based on the genre I choose to tell my stories. Um, if you've watched them and you come across that with that, I'll even question you then because I'm the writer and I know what's going to be phony or cliche or stereotypical. Um, and the genre itself isn't. It's how you approach the characters. And I couldn't get the actors that I get if my stuff was stereotypical because they're not getting paid a ton of money to be there. They're doing it because they responded to the script. Um, so that's where most of my stuff comes from. Um, I just love LA. I'm inspired by LA and where I live and the people that I've been around. I'm, I'm inspired by the people that struggle to just get up in the morning, provide for their family and go to bed with some sense of accomplishment for the day or some uh, fulfillment with whatever it is that they're trying to do. Uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm more blue collar that way. I'm considering myself a blue collar filmmaker because I didn't go to film school. I didn't learn that way. I didn't go to a fancy college to learn writing. A lot of, uh, it's interesting, there's a lot of showrunners now that are working on these urban shows are all, they got writing gigs straight out of college. I'm like, how do you even know this world? And for your average audience, it's enough, but not for me, <laughs> which is might be why they're saying no to having me direct because they take a look at my reel and they're like, oh, this guy's doing it for real. We don't want him around here. <laughs> but because uh, um, that's been the kind of the backlash I get. But it also just depends on, on uh, a lot of times it's people's perception, right? And you can do nothing about that. I just can write, direct and tell the stories that I want to tell in the way that I want to tell them. And if people dig it, then cool. If they don't, not, nothing I can do about that. So sorry, I'm having trouble figuring out why would they give you backlash if, if you know a neighborhood or you want to delve deeper into a headline, what, what would be the problem with that? Well, I'll put it this way. Let's say you're, let's say you have a job as a mechanic and you're a decent mechanic. You know enough about cars to be a mechanic and you're put in charge of hiring another mechanic. Are you going to hire a mechanic who knows more than you? when they can only have oh, two. Oh, okay, okay, that makes does sense. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Okay. You're not gonna hire that guy. You don't want that guy in your garage. <laughs> He's gonna take your job. 
Right. And that's probably wise because I'm not a writer to be in a writer's room. I see myself running a show. I see myself directing shows. Um, I see myself getting my own shows done. Uh, so I think for now, um, with the no's I've gotten from people, that's what my wife says, you know, and, and she's very, she doesn't feed my ego or anything. She's like, why are they going to bring, you're doing it for real. You got real people. You know, I work with a lot of ex-gang members. She's like, who are really good actors. It's not just having ex-gang members to authenticate your work. Can they act? Because I'm seeing a lot of that now too. I'm like, okay, that's great. He was just, he spent this many years in jail, but he can't act. So, but Hollywood doesn't care. They think that, well, we got him and he has a great story and we're going to sell that. Um, that's what I'm seeing a lot of in TV right now. And I'm kind of like, there's such a lack of authenticity. And when you know there's a lack of authentic authenticity is when they constantly are saying how authentic the show is. <laughs> oh, that was my next question. What are, what are some of the red flags? When you, when you see something and it's an urban genre and then you go, wait a minute, I can tell this is written by someone who lived on a cul-de-sac. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and had a swimming pool. Yeah, like, what? That's, uh, yeah that's absolutely correct. Um, that was, I, I think that's the, the biggest red flag for me is when they start talking about how authentic it is. Or they start talking about, they start talking about everything except the stories that they're trying to tell. Because if it is, you get engaged in the storytelling. It doesn't matter. Nothing else matters, you know, and particularly in my community, like that's all that's talked about now. You know, I love Ava DuVernay. She's someone I look up to because she did a Q&A recently and she had on uh, the director of a film called Gook. And she's like, I'm not going to talk about all the social and all the being an, uh, an Asian American filmmaker. Let's talk about the movie. Let's talk about the craft of telling the story. And that's not because, that, you know, because you're a person of color, it's like you have to talk about some type of issue when I'm a filmmaker. It doesn't mean I don't have an opinion about things that are happening in today's world, but they're going to creep up in my films and they're going to creep up in um, genuine and in more subtle ways. I'm not going to. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna promote my stuff by a message. Uh, just not gonna do that. I've seen filmmakers do that. First of all, it doesn't work, and second of all, it's a cheap way of promoting yourself. Let's say someone has a great story idea. What do they do next? Well, there's the thing is there's a lot of things they can do. Um, if it's well, if it's I get people that come up to me with story ideas all the time, and I say, well, write it. You know, they have an idea, and they think that's enough. And that's not enough. If you have an idea and you manage to make it into a story and then turn that story into a script, now you have something. And then you say, well, yeah, but my script is so big, it's $10 million budget, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. Well, what can you shoot from it that isn't gonna cost you $10 million? That's what I'm doing right now. You know, a script I wrote, been writing for 10 years that I wanna get made. Um, I finally just said, I gotta shoot something from this. The script's done, it is done, it's ready to go. I'm not going to get money to do this because they're not going to understand it unless I get some type of angel donor. No studio is going to understand what I'm trying to do here. I'm not Guadon, you know, I'm not him. They're not going to take a chance on this project. But what can I do to help them understand what it is? Well, there's three scenes I can shoot that can cost me very little money. And that's what I do. So that's what I'm doing right now. There are no rules. Like now is like the old West in terms of independent filmmaking. Is it harder to get something on the theater? Absolutely. But to get something made 
it is not hard. To get it seen and shown, it's not hard. Now, to get on Netflix, that's going to be a little bit harder, absolutely. But it's not impossible. You know what I mean? It's not a rich man's game anymore. Um, you're only confined by the things that you put in front of yourself. You know, so I always tell people like, shoot something from it or write something smaller. You know, don't I think your big idea is going to be the first thing out. I got a friend right now that ah, it's got to be 12, 13 years. And it's like, is it a great idea? Yeah, it's the time now. Yeah. But nobody's going to trust you with a $40 million budget to do your, pro your passion project, essentially, because they're going to ask, what have you been doing for 12 years? You've been having the same thing for 12 years. Do something you've, you should have been building up to that. Don't have one thing. You know, I don't say be a jack of all trades. I'm saying as a writer, have tiers. If you're a writer director, have tiers of things that you can do. If it's a three page uh, short, that's fine. You could tell if you could tell a story beginning, middle and in three pages, that's a skill, you know, and now you have something, put it out there, see what people say about it. Um, it's, it's always never relying on this kind of like ethereal thing that something is going to happen. It's always relying on your own two hands because then you have no expectations, right? You can do it and either people like it or don't like it or will find the right spot. You don't know. There's so many, you, you can only control what you, what you can do, not help, not everything else. You know, I couldn't tell you how I was going to get my first three films financed, you know, I didn't go about it uh, the way that normal people do. You know, I took my short films and packaged them like a DVD you would buy in a, you know, at a video store. And I passed them out to all the local film festivals that rejected those films. And guess what? There was a distributor producer there <laughs> and he ended up financing my first three films. Oh, wow. So that's a cool story. You just have to find new ways. You know, I'm not a big proponent of crowdfunding. Um, but if, you know, my thing is go get a, go get a job for three months and save up, you know, why don't ask people to give you money for something that you don't even know if you're capable of pulling off. And you, you've said earlier that you feel like the first film that an indie filmmaker makes, whether it's through crowdfunding, mm -hmm. a combination, family, friends, coworkers, that's easy. Yes. And then subsequent ones, right. very, very tough. Why? Very tough. Why is that? Well, let it, if it's a double-edged sword, so let's say you've crowdfunded your first film, right? You got it, you're 22,000. 22,000 seems to be the, the, the magic number that everyone goes after, right? So you crowdfund, you do it, and everyone comes to the screening, and they're all excited, and they got their button and their T-shirt or whatever, and then nothing happens. Okay, nothing in the sense of it didn't go to Sundance or it didn't get distribution or it didn't do anything. So you start your next one, right? Now you have to make your second film. There are a lot of people going to be like, well, I gave you $100 last time to support you. I don't have that money to help you with this second one. You're going to have to figure that out, you know, or, you know, that, that becomes, then it becomes about the crowdfunding, not about the storytelling, <laughs> you know, because the amount of work it takes just to crowdfund is unbelievable and it's not something I enjoy at all, you know? And to me, it's like if you have 22,000, that's what you're raising, you're, a percentage of that's gonna go to um, 
is going to go to the 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 platform that you're using plus a percentage of that's going to go to all the little things that you've promised people whether they're buttons or coffee mugs or whatever and then a lot of people know you have to pay a tax on that because it's considered income unless you're a nonprofit but if you're making a movie you want to make a profit um so then what do you have left over you know and then if let's say you owe your rent the next month i've seen that happen too many times there was a two-year period where me and my wife were donating hundred dollars to uh, projects that were being crowdfunded. And we did 20 in a two-year period. So it's about $2,000 over two years. Out of those 20 projects, one of them was made. You know, so I just stopped and I get people all the time. Hey, can you help us out? Can you help us out? I said, look, man, I wish you well. I'll be at your screening. I'll, I'll share whatever you wanted me to share, but I'm not, I'm not giving money anymore. I have two kids and a wife and I uh, want to put them both through college, my two kids through college. You know, so I go, but I wish you well, you know, and then uh, for sure enough that like, you know, three, you hear it every day on social media. Then as soon as the money is raised, you don't hear about the project anymore. I'm like, what happened to your project? Well, rents do. That's the problem. With this script that you'd been writing for 10 years or, or did you write it for 10 years? Sorry. Or did, did it take 10 years for you to get to this point? It took 10 years for me to get to this point. Yeah. Okay. It took me about three or four years to write it. And it's my 10th script, yeah. My 10th screenplay. And so when you said, I'm gonna just do three scenes, is that it? Yeah, I'm shooting three scenes that show the character from the womb to a 10-year-old to an 18-year-old. Ah, so you're doing it in, in sequential order then? Yes. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. Was it, that's was what I was wondering is, how are you determining which scenes to shoot? So you're- um, I'm showing his journey in little increments and I'm hoping the audience is gonna go, oh, wow, what, what happened between here and here? What happened between here and there? Because in between those scenes, I have an incredible actor, uh, Chicano icon actor that I've grown up watching in Pepe Serna and he plays what I'm calling the Chicano chorus. And he's, it's, uh, it's I wrote it in iambic pentameter, so he's, telling this Shakespearean story in between those vignettes to fill the audience in the blank. So it's very stylized um, and I'm very happy with it. Uh, I have one, one of the vignettes left to shoot, but um, I'm editing it and I'm rewriting that last vignette because uh, I haven't been completely happy with it. And they're not taken from the script. The story is, but the scripts are, the script, only one scene is actually word for word from the script. I had to modify the other ones to show some history and a little bit of his, that character's journey. How do you know you have a great protagonist? I don't. I don't ever. Yeah, don't ever. Um, it's a chance, you know, with, with first writing it and then bringing in the right actor. You know, that was something that a lot of actors take for granted is can they carry a movie? You know, in an independent world, like there are no, you know, you're looking for someone, you have to go off your instinct. Is this guy going to carry this movie? You know, and are people going to be interested in this person throughout the entire hour and a half? That's something I don't take for, I don't take that for granted, you know, because if they don't, the movie's done, you know, and I've been fortunate that I've worked with actors that have moved on to bigger and better things. And that's been a validation of, for me, because when I cast them, they weren't SAG, they didn't have an agent, they didn't, they were diamonds in the rough. Um, so I, I'm always, my wife says, you're, you're every actor's good luck charm. She's like, they always move on to bigger and better things. I'm like, well, that's great. <laughs> but, uh, 
but it's a, it's a validation of my casting process as well. Where do you find your actors? It'll be a variety of things. Um, actors Access, uh, Breakthrough Services. Um, I've done enough now where I'll ask other actors to refer actors. Um, and that's been a really great thing because then it, because not every actor can play the part, right? I'll give you an example of where that happened. And Counterpunch uh, was my fifth film where we were casting a grandmother. And I brought in an actor to be uh, the uncle. And he says, you know, I got a great actress that I've worked with in New York who would be great as the grandmother. And I go, who is, who is she? So Yvonne Cole. And I'm like, I'm not familiar with her. He's like, she's, uh, she's, up, she's been in the business a long time, but she's, uh, she's going to be booking something very quickly. I mean, very big soon. She's like, but he's like, but I think she'd be great. She was the first one I ended up casting in that film. And we brought her in and we read like almost a full year. Well, we initially had the initial funding. She came in for that table read. She was that character. And then uh, when that funding fell through, we had the initial, the, the, the second reading for that. Um, and she stayed with the project the entire time. She's on Jane the Virgin, which just ended a five-year run. And um, just amazing, amazing woman, amazing actress. But there was someone I got from another actor. Oh, you know, wow. it was Yvonne Cole. And um, yeah, so it's a, it's a combination. It's a combination of things. Um, sometimes I see a play or if I s just watching TV, just paying attention. You know, like I've always said that the, the way for us to get through writers or directors and actors is to supersede the process. You know what I mean? If, if a show is relying on casting directors, well, who are they going to bring in? Right? They have their own people they're going to bring in. And, and maybe they, to weed out everybody, there are all these systems to weed out people. But you may be weeding out a diamond in there. And my attitude is like, I want to see everybody. You know? And I, is that time consuming? Yes. But that's how I found my actors. So you've written scripts for film and now you'd like to add television? I'm looking to direct, get into directing television. Directing, okay. Yeah. I really would like to. I mean, I have a pilot that I've written that I would like to get made. It's about the LA riots. It's an honest portrayal of the LA riots in Los Angeles. So it would be very difficult to get done. But, uh, but in the meantime, my, my focus over the last three years has been television. Um, just after you've done seven feature films, I love it and I still would do it, um, but I, I really, I, I, I just, there's so many things, I've been more inspired by television right now that's, than the, what's happening in cinema, so that's where my focus has been, you know. And plus, it's like that thing too where when I was first starting out, you know, I shot my first feature on an XL1, a Canon XL1. Nobody was doing that at that time. So I felt like, okay, cool, you, you're putting yourself in a class, right? where you're not doing what everyone else is doing. And then after I made my first feature, I was like, well, no one's done a second. So my thing was to do a second. So my thing was always to put myself in a category where I didn't have any peers. And so now I'm in a place where everybody I know is making a movie because they can. That's a bad place for me to be. So I don't know a lot of people that are getting into directing television because it's very difficult. Um, and even with the diversity talk, that again, like I talked about earlier, that's on the surface, but underneath there's not much changing. So that's what I'm finding because I don't have an agent. I'm reaching out directly to showrunners and I'm reaching out for shows that I'm right for. And the good thing on that is I get people that will reach back. 
They may say no right now, but they're saying, keep in touch with, I love your reel, keep in touch. I can't believe you don't have an agent. I can't believe you're not directing TV already. I can't help you right now, but keep in touch. You know, that's a win. That's a win. If I get a showrunner, showrunner, if I reach out to a showrunner on social media and they send me back their email, that's a win. Even if I don't get the job, because maybe I'll get the job next year. We'll see. We'll see. We do an interview again and I'm directing some television. <laughs> Let me put that back. Let me do that again. Yeah. Maybe we're here next year and I'm directing television. Who knows? Do you still submit to film festivals? I don't. No. I, over the years, I've realized that all the film festivals I ever screened at were always through an invitation or through someone I know. I can't tell you that in the thousands of dollars I've spent submitting to film festivals that there was one that I got in through a direct submission, just a blind submission. I can't tell you that there's one. They were always through people I knew, filmmakers I knew, hey, send your movie over to this guy, they need your type of movie. Um, and I just don't feel, there's so much content now, like I just don't feel those are the places that people are looking anymore, even Sundance, uh, maybe more so, but uh, that will always be a, a major film festival. But um, what I've, you know, I, after Counterpunch had gotten into Netflix, got distribution through Lionsgate and then was on Netflix for two years, there were films that went to Sundance the year that Counterpunch would have screened because I did submit that film and they were on Sundance for six months. So I, I stopped looking at it that way. I like, I want my movies to be seen. I, I don't care about awards. Is that a bucket list thing for, as a filmmaker? Absolutely. I will say this though about Sundance. I've submitted three of my seven there. And um, I would occasionally go to an event, not Sundance event, just a film event, and a programmer would come up to me. Hey, I saw, I saw La Guapa, man, I pushed it forward. I'm a Sundance programmer. I saw Counterpunch, man, I loved it. I, I pushed it forward. It made me feel good just to know that the films I did submit to Sundance did get seen. Mm. And even though they got passed on, because I think a lot of people are like, are they even watching all these films? I can tell you that they are because I don't know who the programmers are. It, you have to, they have to come and introduce themselves to me and say, I saw your film and I loved it and I pushed it forward. I'm sorry I didn't get in. Um, that's enough for me. I'm like, cool, I'm just glad someone watched it over there. Um, but no, I, I, I don't. I think film festivals now are just for ego. Again, I, I, I'm not interested. I'm not interested in that. If someone genuinely likes my film and wants to show it, absolutely. Um, and I have a couple of favorites. Um, and I'll be surprised. Like I got invited to the Chicanindi Film Festival in Denver, Colorado. I didn't know they were even paying attention to my stuff. And they said, hey, we, we see you made all these films or Chicano Film Festival, you want to, they flew me out. They were so nice to me. And, and that was cool, it was unexpected, you know. Um, but, and then other film festivals you go to and you just feel like, I don't know, it's like the films are secondary. <laughs> you know, it's, it's about the event or there's one movie that's really big and we're all like the kind of satellites around this giant moon of a film and um, they all get lost. But I've never had a screening at a film festival that was bigger than screenings I put on myself. And so people that you've grown up with that you know have come to see your films, have you screened them in Wilmington or around that area? No, well I did do a screening in the South Bay at the Rolling Hills 20 for my sixth film. Uh, called, it's, it has two titles, there's a Spanish language title, La Guapa, and then there's Thou Shalt Not Kill. And I did that one there and that was cool because that was a, film, that was a movie theater I used to go to as a kid and sneak into and see R-rated movies at. 
So the screen there was pretty cool. Um, and there were some people that were there uh, from when I'd grown up, um, people that were paying attention that I didn't know were paying attention. So that was the only time. I would love to scream in Wilmington, but we never, we don't have a, oh, and I did a, at the Warner Grand in San Pedro. I screened there and I used to see movies there as well. So that was, those were pretty cool, but they were very small screenings, you know. <laughs> and Warner Grand is this giant art deco theater and I think there were maybe 50 people there. Um, but when I did my initial counterpunch screening, we did two screenings in one night, 150 people, you know, each screening. So the film festival does their best to try to promote everybody, but it's really essentially up to you, you know. And I just find it easier that if I'm having a screening, it's easy for me to promote it myself and rally people to go see it as opposed to going to a film festival screening. I don't know why, because I have to use their website and sometimes it's confusing. They got to find the film or find the link or, you know, whatever it is. But but uh, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't waste my time collecting laurels on my posters. I just don't. <laughs> Do you have tips on writing dialogue where it doesn't sound forced or even omitting dialogue? I think the only way to do that is to watch movies and read scripts with good dialogue. Um, have good conversations. <laughs> um, that's a tough one. I don't know. You just know when it's not right. Uh, for me, like some of the masters, like a Tarantino, like they approach it like a novel, I think, more like a book. Um, I think a lot of it has to do with what's not said. Um, if you if you have clear if you have a clear understanding of the relationships between the characters, the dialogue comes off more naturally in between those two. So I think you have to start there. You know, if you know your characters, they start to talk to each other on their own in a weird way. Uh, that's never been an issue for me. Like my issue is I write too much dialogue. Like my first film was like. They just said, look, man, this is a 10 page scene and they're just talking. <laughs> and I'm like, well, I don't know how to cut it because I love everything they're saying. <laughs> and I'm like, that's what they say. He's like, well, we can cut it now. We can cut it in the editing room. And I thought, well, let's just do that. We can cut it in the editing room if it's not working. But um, it was a challenge, you know, for my actors to do a six page scene, you know, and six pages of dialogue because I'm someone that likes to keep the camera on them and have them go through it. I'm not going to break it up. I want them to be emotionally connected. And my stuff has a rhythm to it. So if they're not on that, that train, they're gonna have a hard time, you know? But uh, my dialogue is what attracted a lot of actors to it. I just, I always, you only ever hear an actor say, um, when, they, when they say the writing's so good, they didn't have to work as hard. That means they didn't have to sell it. They just had to speak it, you know? If you ever read Titanic, the scripted Titanic is really bad. It's like if you read it, and that was the only thing that didn't get nominated for an Academy Award, ironically, was the script. But when you read it, I mean, the story is there and the relationships are there. But I'm just talking about the dialogue. But Leonardo DiCaprio and Kate Winslet are so skilled that when they say the lines, you just believe it. You know, I'm sorry. This, I don't think I'm the only one that said that about Titanic's script. Um, and I'm not talking story structure. I'm not talking about anything. I'm just talking about the dialogue of that, you know. Um, but if you have good enough actors, it doesn't matter. Like they, they can sell it. That's what they get paid for, right? But um, whenever I hear an actor say, yeah, I didn't have to work as hard on this one, that means that it was right there, you know? And with my dialogue, they have to pick it up fast because I'm, I'm shooting a feature in three weeks, you know? So you have a maximum of five takes, you know? Yeah. Is that what you meant by a rhythm? Because, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And, um, 
you know, if I have two cam, if I have more than one camera, but on a couple occasions I did, then it's great. Then, then I have this thing going back in this tennis match going back and forth between the characters. But um, in terms of tips, that's a tough one. I think just know who, know who your characters are before you start your screenplay. And it's weird, but they start talking to each other. It's very strange, but that's, that's been my experience. It's like, wait, wait a minute, how the hell? Like, and I'm, I'm shocked by it every time I write a script. So that's the first thing. It's like, oh my God, how am I going to do this? And then you just start getting into a flow. And it just takes practice, right? The more you do it, the better you're going to get at it. You know? But don't give away plot in your dialogue. We don't, you know, we don't talk like that, right? We don't talk about plot in life. <laughs> you know? So you shouldn't, you sh that should be a first sign that the dialogue's bad. <laughs> Have you had actors on set and you realize that it's way more effective for them to say nothing? And you decide in the moment to take it out? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Because I, I come from silent movies. I also did a, a short film series uh, called The Misadventures of Cholo Chaplin. And they were silent short films, black and white silent short films, where there was no dialogue. And I'm, in my seventh feature film, there was very little dialogue. It was all the actor. So there was a lot of... That's sort of my background is now to, to give less and tell more between the characters through action and emotion and less through dialogue. Um, that's more my just that's kind of where I'm leading right now um, um, and not be so in love with my words that well can we show that without them saying anything or saying a lot lot less yes always cut the fat like cut as much as you can you know the, the simpler it is the 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 fuller it can be in a weird way do you, do you see that from being a beginning filmmaker all the way until now, that really a lot of it was about cutting the fat in some, in some sense? Yes, because my process started, you know, when I first wrote my first screenplay that it was, I didn't have notes or anything. I just had an idea, right? And so I would just start. And then at the end of that process, you just have this like really fatty piece of meat and then you realize, I don't need this, I don't need that, I don't need this. Or you repeat yourself. You know, now I'm, I'm, I'm a more disciplined writer in the sense that I'll write a treatment first. So I don't have as much fat once my script is done. Um, because I already know what I'm not going to use. Um, because I've already done notes, I've done a treatment for it, and now I'm going to script form. Um, and that's only been the, like the last two or three scripts that I've written. You know, so um, I'm constantly learning because I didn't start from some place of filmmaking, you know. When you're starting a story, are you starting with an outline? I didn't always do that. I actually learned how to do that recently. I, one of the best creative decisions I've ever made was joining a writing group. I was in a bubble for a very long time. Um, but it's also hard to find a writing group where everyone knows how to give notes um, and knows how to take notes. And so I've been, I was very lucky because what we have is very unique and the people within that writing group understand that too. And I've gotten jobs out of this writing group. You know, we're all kind of looking out for each other. There's only eight of us. But um, I, you know, I was a type that would just turn in pages and say, okay, this is what my, and they're like, well, we don't know where the story's going. Can you just outline it for us? And I'm like, no, I don't outline. Just follow <laughs> this. Give me the notes on the pages. Like, yeah, well, we can't give you notes. We don't know where the story's going. And so then I had to think about how do I do that? And I, I started writing, um, learning how to write treatment, you know, and, and that was great 
first practice in terms of just writing a treatment makes it very easy for you to pitch your script. Um, so there's that skill. And then outlining it, you know, when I would get lost, normally when I'm writing a script, right, I'm just going and I get to a point and I don't know where the story is going to go from there. That's normally how I would write. I'm not saying it's the right way to do it, but that's how I would do it. And then I would, something would strike me or I would know, okay, well over here I know this is going to happen, so let me just start there. So these huge gaps in my scripts, and then I would connect those gaps. Well now, I outline my entire script, my entire story. First I'll take those from notes. So I'll have a notebook with me everywhere I go. So it doesn't matter where I'm at, an idea will come and I'll write it down. And um, I'm starting to get into recording, but I'm very old school. So I start just writing down and a page of notes in my little notebook will be about 10 pages of script. So I'll usually then on my writing day will translate that to those 10 pages. Um, but now that was the old way. Now I will outline everything. So I'll outline the entire story and I'm able to write my scripts a lot faster because of that. Because I already know where the story is going to go, the dialogue, the characters are fleshed out, and the dialogue will, comes a lot easier and a lot faster. So I definitely recommend that, but you have to learn how to outline, you have to learn how to write a treatment, you have to learn how to com, um, convert your notes to those things. Me, I just started writing scripts, because that's what I, I, I understood the script, right? And started writing there, but that was a, a very stop-start kind of, kind of way. I like to... Now it's just like a fluid, like, like playing a piano. You know, once the outline's done and I start the screenplay, it's like playing a piano for me. What did the writing group teach you about um, giving notes? <sighs> Not to give notes in the sense that this is how I would do it. You're giving notes in terms of what's missing, what's not being communicated. Um, what do you, is this your intention here? Because this is what I'm getting from it. Um, you're never coming from a place of ego either. Um, and sometimes that happens. Sometimes you get hurt by the notes or you feel like sometimes someone gives a bad note. You know, that happens too. But with this particular group, we've established ourselves enough where we, we do hurt each other on occasion, but we can recover, you know, and move on. You know, just recently, like I'm doing this screenplay and they're like, all of them were in agreement, like kill the first act of this. Like it's, you don't need it. And that was like, I was just so against that, <laughs> like I'm like, no, I'm not killing that act. And then I turned in the outline, and so when I started the script, you know, I said, I appreciate all you guys' notes, but I didn't take that one. And so the first 10 pages are this act you told me to kill. And then two-thirds of them were like, oh, okay, I get it. Because sometimes it's not always on the outline either. Sometimes it's in the screenplay, you know, and they were judging the outline. They're like, okay, now I see, I see what you're saying now. Because when I send them the script, they're like, yeah, this is engaging, I'm going to treat, I totally get it now. But that was also me sticking to my gut. But normally when everybody in the room is against something, that's when I know that, that it's special. <laughs> Francis Ford Coppola said, the things that they want to fire you for when you're a young filmmaker are the things that they give you awards for when you're, young, when you're older. And that's in the back of my mind. So when they, all, when they were all in agreement, if they were like half liked it, half didn't like it, I would have been more conflicted about whether or not to keep it, but when all of them were like, no, this, you don't need that. I'm like, no, this, we're going forward with this. I'm trusting my gut. You guys are wrong on this one. And I, I proved some of them wrong uh, on, that, on that next, uh, when I presented the script. 
What has this writing group taught you about outlining? It's like a combination of being concise and being as detailed as you possibly can. Um, sometimes I don't have the patience for that because I know I'm going for a feeling, right? So I'll start writing out a scene that doesn't necessarily feed the outline. That's going to be in the script. So I just need to say on a beach somewhere, whatever, the two characters have a conversation. So I, some of them are very good and very detail-oriented with their outlines and will continue to do that until they get to the script. Me, since I'm the director, like there's only three directors in our group. They're director-writers. So for the writers in the group, their outlines are going to be far more detailed. Um, and I have to remind them sometimes, I'm a director. No one's going to direct this script except me. So I don't need to write all that out for myself. And I don't necessarily need to write all that out for an investor. I need, the sto I need them to get the gist, the gist of the story. And then hopefully that's enough. I need them to be interested enough to, re to read the screenplay. Um, so I, could be, I, I would be more detailed for things I'm not going to shoot. That maybe, but I, most of the things that I write, I know I'm going to shoot them. So I don't necessarily have to be that. For the group to know where I'm going and who the characters are, what the log line is, how, what the pitch is, um, that's what I present. And then all of the great nuances that I want to put into it go into the screenplay. So if someone said, I love what you've written, and I hate to use the A word, uh, they say it's authentic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, are you willing to, to then turn it over to them and, and not be the director? What if they say, sorry, we, we've already kind of like filled some roles here, but we love the script, we love the story, the voice is original. Right. I don't, I don't know. I've never been in that situation. Um, it depends on how attached I am to the script. But every screenplay I've ever written, I've had a personal attachment to. I've never not written anything that wasn't personal or I had an attachment to it. I've never written something just for fun or just because I thought it would, this would be cool. Like everything that I've written has been personal, everything. So I don't see myself... Uh, that's why I don't think I could ever be in a writer's room. You know, I just don't know how to, I don't know that I would want to put myself into someone else's characters on a daily basis. I think that you know, those are, that, that's a, that's work. Um, and I'm sure it's great work, uh, but that's not necessarily for me. I need to dictate the story and I need to dictate the characters. Do you think it's because they mean so much to you, these characters? That you're not, you're not just writing just like this, this, this no. weird character, they mean a lot to you? Yeah, they don't, if, if I'm spending time with them, then I'm, it's not that they mean so much, they do mean something, but it's, I'm protective of them. And I'm selfish with them. But in a good, not in a, not, it sounds like because you're protective. Yeah, so, no, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm invested with the actor because they're, they're communicating that character. You know, and then, they're, then now they're invested in it. Now they're, they're going to protect this story. They're going to protect the character. You know, um, and that's exciting. That's when I share. That's when I share is when we're on day one of set. Now I start sharing, you know, the story and the screenplay and the characters with everybody. And hopefully the audience responds. Great. So it's almost, they're like real people and you're, you, it's yeah. like you don't want to let them go. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. I definitely look at them that way. Absolutely.
Did you ever feel there were limitations with using one of the most expensive cameras you've used for your sets where when you use something that might have been cheaper, you felt like you focused more on the storytelling? What do you mean? Well, you know how people always use, well, I, I don't have access to this budget, so right. I can't get this camera, so I can't do the film. But then sometimes that actually makes you come oh, up with a better story. Yeah, absolutely. Like I, my last film that I shot, and what I would tell people, I'm like, again, I'm not a film student, but I know that it's the lenses. It's not necessarily the camera, it's the lenses you choose. You know, so, you know, I've shot on reds. Three of my films were shot on a red. I knew for Marigold, I wasn't gonna be able to shoot on a red, but that kind of helped us because we shot on a DSLR. Now I shot on a DSLR, but I shot it with Zeiss Prime lenses. So that gave us access to a whole, the whole city. You know, I did have a permit because I was going to shoot in the LA River and I wasn't going, you know, I had a makeup artist. I had all kinds of, I was not going to risk us being kicked out of the LA River. Um, so I did get a permit for that, but we went to um, Grand Union Station. We had a camera, we shot on a train, you know, you could do so much more with a DSLR, but, and I love the way that film looked because of the lenses we chose and just, the way the days panned out, it was very color. I wanted to be very colorful and we always seemed to get a day. We were always shooting after a rain, you know? So there was like the clouds and the sky was super blue and the air was clear. And, but shooting that particular film gave me mobility and flexibility because one of my characters was schizophrenic and he had no dialogue. I didn't know what he was going to do. So I would just give him a scenario and say, this is what I need to end up happening. And then I would be right there with my DP and he's shooting it. And then, you know, he had to be very skilled because he has to keep things in focus and, and, and composed because um, I wanted the shot to be interesting. And then if something got messed up, it was just a simple thing of, okay, do that again, Ivan, but do it this way and stay in this, stay right here. Don't move out so we can keep you in focus. Okay. And then we shoot. So it was just such a very great fluid way of shooting. Um, that particular film and it was fun it was fun to shoot because we just go 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 and we were just using natural light everywhere um and that could be a hit or miss if you don't have a good dp if you don't have a good colorist which i have an amazing colorist um i knew that was going to look great with what with once we had all, all the pieces put together um so that was definitely one of those instances you know it's not the camera it's who's behind the camera uh, that's the biggest lesson, but you know, people want, you know, I, I, during that process, I got, I kind of got it because it didn't feel like I was making a movie. You know, I wanted the big camera and the lights and everything. And it's a crew of five and I'm over my DP shoulder, you know, giving them direction. But then when I looked at the images and the footage, it was big and it was alive and it was emotional. So it just doesn't matter all the other stuff, right? That's for your ego. And at the, during the time of that process, when I was kind of asking myself, you know, wow, is this really a movie now or not? And there's a great shot I saw and it's of uh, Chivo with uh, Alejandro Inuratu and they're in the forest, you know, for Revenant. And there's Chivo with a camera, digital camera, this big, and Leonardo DiCaprio's right there. <laughs> And Alejandro's over his shoulder. And this is almost the exact same thing as my, you know, that picture I just painted of, of me over my DPs. And that's not just real. Of course, they have a ton of more money and every resource and everything else. But that's essentially what it is, you know. And if your story is strong enough, it really will. It goes beyond the technology. And that's the best advice I could give 
to any filmmaker is it, don't get wrapped up in that. If you have a strong story and you're able to execute that story, it'll go beyond the, the technology, you know, because essentially the audience doesn't care what you shot on. They don't care. You know, is it your movie for cinephiles or is it for, for me, it's for the person who wants an escape, who worked a hard day and wants an escape or they want to feel something. They want some truth. Um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's what propels me. Do you think about the flaw in your protagonist while you're writing a story? No, if I'm writing them, they already have flaws. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't think about that. I just try to make, if I make them human, they already have them. I don't try to accentuate. I don't try to manipulate. I don't try to impose a flaw. Um, if I'm making a human character, they already have flaws. That's what makes them genuine. That's what makes them authentic. I don't need to add a flaw to them. If I'm adding a flaw to them, then I think that's why the Superman character is such a hard character to grasp because he's so good and he's invulnerable. That's not interesting. You know what I mean? He can fly, which is cool. But how do you make that character vulnerable? How do you make him have flaws? You know, he has to be a bad guy and he's never going to be a bad guy. He's Superman. He has to have some, some type of, that's a lot of weight on somebody to have that, right? I don't know if that, that's been explored, but I don't know that you can explore that with that character. I don't think the audience would accept it, you know? So um, in terms of creating flaws for my characters, they already have them, yeah. It's interesting because we want to see actors on screen portray that, but then we want to believe that these public figures don't have flaws. Yeah, it, it becomes a hero worship, you know, the people that we believe in, it becomes a hero worship. That's where like, you know, that's where like celebrity or let's say famous people, it's like, I'm just like you. Yeah, they, that's a true statement. I am just like you. It's, it's what we put on them because they're on a big screen or they're in TV or politics or whatever. It's what we, it's our perception of them. That's why I don't get starstruck because I'm not, I, I, I judge a person by what's right in front of me. I don't go by the facade and everything else. Um, so I don't get starstruck. The only time I did get starstruck was when I got to meet my hero, Muhammad Ali. Oh, but that's wow. Muhammad Ali, <laughs> you know? So that's, a, and he is flawless and for, in my opinion. He's a legend. I met a legend, a living legend. So um, he's the only one, but I don't, I don't get starstruck other than that, you know? I just don't. Did you say anything to him? Yes, I did. I got to, uh, I got to tell him what he meant to me my entire life and how he inspired me to to sometimes say things and do things that not everybody's gonna like, but if it's your truth that you have to, that you have to say it and you have to do it. Not everyone's gonna, a lot of people don't realize that Muhammad Ali was not liked for, a, for the very beginning of his career. He was not liked. I mean, he, it's hard for people to imagine that, but I know the man's story and um, yeah, he, he had it very hard and to keep his poise and, and everything that he did, that's why I just don't care what people think. What did he say when you said that? To I him? can't tell you that. Okay, all right, all right, all right. Do I have to read it again in the book? Will it no, be in the book? I don't even put that in. Book. That's oh, saved okay. for me. Okay, no, that's, but that shows that that meant a lot to you. Oh that yeah. You're not you're not about like a cheap story. Where no, you tell everyone no. It was I didn't. Special. I I shared it with my wife, but I never. I tell people that story of how I got to meet him and the whole oh. the whole night and everything and, um, uh, but I don't tell them everything. That's fair. <laughs> okay. 
I know we touched on some of this previously. I'm wondering if you could just go back to the hardest year for you as a filmmaker and why, and then the easiest year for you as a filmmaker. And what was your, what was the outcome of your thought after experiencing both years? Wow. Um, those were back to back. The worst year um, and my best year were back to back. And some, I mean, try to give you the cliff notes, but like 2010, like I mentioned earlier, started with my son getting in an accident. I was getting ready to get ready to shoot my third film. And, you know, on the, the day after his accident, I basically, I literally had sent my script to my producer that morning, the morning my son was, in his, was injured. So my assistant director was already scheduling things and, and, and getting things, you know, starting our prep. And I was supposed to shoot that in February. So, you know, they were calling me, she was calling me and people were calling me. I wasn't answering my phone. Obviously, my son was my number one priority. And when I got on, they're like, where the hell are you? We got the script. We have questions about this, that, and the other. And I called them. I said, my son was in an accident. Um, he's in ICU. And I, I, don't, I, I, I just don't have any answers for you. I, you have my script. You paid me for it. If you, want it, if you guys got to stay with that schedule, just do whatever you want with it. Get another director. I don't care. And my producer at the time was, knew my family. So he was just like, don't worry about anything. We're ready when you are. And they had, you know, they had a deal with Blockbuster, so they had to get movies out at certain times. He's like, we'll, we'll figure it out. He's like, just don't worry about the movie. Take care of your family and just, you know, keep us posted on how Julian's doing. And that just made me feel good from a producer to say me that because I wouldn't, I wouldn't have faulted them if he had just said, you know what, we're going to have to hire another director because we have a schedule. But, you know, of course, you know, stay with your son. So it wasn't until like three weeks after that accident and he got home that my wife said, go make your movie. He's fine. And I said, I didn't want to go anywhere, really. I just wanted to be with my son. She's like, you, you love this script. You, you put your heart in. He's, he's fine. He's totally fine. You know, and go make your movie. So I called my producer. I said, let's, let's get started on pre-production. He's like, we're already there. <laughs> I said, I go, did you hire a director? He's like, nope, we, knew, we know you're coming back. <laughs> I said, all right. So I went and shot my third film and I edited it in Mexico City. Uh, when I got back, I got told that, and this is the bad year. <laughs> so I got told, uh, by an actor I was working with that he's got his life story uh, produced. He's a, a bipolar Golden Gloves boxer who was an actor and he got the money from this, these two brothers that wanted to produce his film. And, um, and then when I had gotten back from Mexico, I was told by my producer, we have the money to do your, your fourth. So I was like, great, what's, uh, they'll all get started. So I started not bartending as much because I was working so heavily on two scripts at the same time which I don't necessarily suggest, but they were, what was great about that is when I would submit an idea for one of the scripts and it would come back from the producers and they didn't like the scene, I would take that scene and put it for my other script. <laughs> so I was able to take, mix and match them a little bit. Um, that was a great time. But then at the end of that process, like I was ready. I was like, okay, good, let's go. I was wanting to quit my job. I wanted the, the financing for both these to go through. And then it was, there was some skepticism and then Blockbuster went out of business and that just killed the fourth, the budget for the fourth film. So I was like, okay, I still have Counterpunch. And then those two punks that were producers 
decided that they were going to use my connections to do their thing and they didn't want to produce our thing anymore they were going to do their own thing and they ended up doing some stereotypical really crappy horror thing that they did so i was just like left holding this bag and i'm like and I'm like two months behind on, on our mortgage and I'm like, I've got to get back to work. So I just threw those both, you know, in a bin and I was at work and I was just like picking up shifts left and right. I was working five, six shifts a week and I just was not making enough money because it was the economy turnaround at that time. And I just couldn't catch up. I couldn't catch up, man. And I just... Uh, by the time December rolled around, uh, I was ready to premiere my third, my third feature film. And it was very ironic because it was at Rally Studios and it was probably the week before that. It's very, it's very strange when you're doing your dream, but your, your life is kind of going south, right? But this is going, it was, you're, it's this weird tug of war. And... I just remember after telling my wife, look, I fucked up. We're losing the house. We're going to have to move. I don't know how aggressive they are going to be at coming to take the house. My biggest fear was coming home and there being a lock and picking up my kids and there being a lock on our front door and we can't get into our house. I go, so we're going to have to move uh, right after this shoot, right after this the screening. And she was so gracious about it. Um, and I remember sitting outside going, I'm screening my third feature film next week and I'm losing my house. How did I even fucking get here? And I remember going to Rally Studios to test out. I was basically at that point thinking I'm gonna stop. After the third one, I'm gonna stop. I've given up so much and sacrificed so much. After this third one, I'm done. And I remember going to Rally Studios and I was gonna do a test of my hard drive because my movie was on the hard drive. And the projectionist was there. And, you know, these guys, they do this. This is their job. They've seen a million filmmakers come in and they could care less. He just wants to get in and out. We're going to do, your, we're going to do a test. I'm going to go ten, every 10 minutes to see if it's okay. I'm like, okay, cool. I go, I just have a concern about the first 10 uh, minutes here and then we'll jump. And he's like, all right. Um, so go ahead and sit down. You can call me. So I'm sitting in this rally studio screening, watching my movie up there. And I'm like this. First time I'm seen on the big screen. I've edited a million times on the small screen. But all the, it was just so big and the nuance and the performances and it was there and I'm just like watching it going wow I'm like watching it for the first time by myself in Rally Studios and before I knew it I'm like two thirds the way through and I haven't heard from the projectionist and I'm like oh shit I only have like a half hour to really be there I only have a half hour time to test my movie so I turn around and he's like four rows behind me watching the movie <laughs> and I and I go like this to him and he's like. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. He starts, he's watching my movie. He got into my movie. And I just was like, it was a, just a, a great moment in such a dark time for me. And I remember going to him going, and we watched the whole thing. So me and him watched the whole thing. He's like, man, I loved it. Loved it. He's like, I see so much crap come in here, man. With He's like, what was your budget on that? And I told him, and he's like, no way, no way. He's like, I'm going to keep my eye on you. And I go, thanks so much, man. And, um, and then, you know, we had the screening. It was a great screening, and it got distribution, and... Um, but again, it wasn't all enough money. By that time, I had I was already gotten another apartment. And we were moving out, so 2010 ended with us losing our house um, and moving, and uh, you know having movies out. I was still doing shorts. I was still writing. I was still doing all those things. 
So then when we moved out, I was pretty much done with filmmaking. I basically said, this is too much of a sacrifice that I put on my family. If it was just me, who cares, right? But yeah, that was a tough conversation with my wife and kids and... 2010, sorry. 2010, 2010. And, okay. Yeah. Uh -huh. So we get to 2011 and it wasn't dire. We weren't homeless, you know? We, I, I had three... Um, it was actually a really good lesson in negotiation, particularly if I come against producers or, or distributors again. But I had three real estate agents that were like hawks, like rats, trying to get our house. And so I basically, I emailed them individually saying, I have five other real estate agents that are offering me this amount of money to move out in three weeks. Whichever one of you comes with the, um, with the highest number is the one that's going to get this house. Because I had to sign off on on giving it to them. And uh, so I got a, a good chunk of money to have a little bit of a nest egg, even though I was broke, my credit was shot, everything was shot, get us into a nice apartment and then start over. Sorry, just real quick, how did they know that they must have checked the bank records? Oh yeah, okay. it's a whole racket, man. It's a whole racket. The banks were never going to, never, no intention of helping people keep, stay in their homes because it would have been very easy to do. Um, so I, uh, it's like January, February of 2011 now, and I'm done. I'm done. Uh, my family's safe. We're in a nice place. I'm on a balcony. I'm reading a book. <laughs> my producer calls. I'm like, oh, what does he want? Hey, what's up? Hey, man, fourth feature is on. We got some money. <laughs> We're going to go forward. I go, no, no, I'm not doing it. And he's like, what do you mean you're not doing it? He's like, we love your script. We're going to go forward and shoot Mexico. I said, no, no, I'm not doing it. He, I, he's like, well, I go, what's the budget? And the budget was just ridiculously low. I go, my film can't be shot for that. He's like, we'll make it happen, man. He, he, they were looking out for their company. Um, they want to stay relevant. I go, let me write something else that's smaller. No, we can make it. We can do it. We can do it. And I said... All right, um, all right, let's do it. And so then it was just hard to cast because the budget was so low. But I felt like, okay, here's my second shot, right? I didn't have to worry about money at this point. We had money in the bank. We were safe. I'm going to go make another movie. I thought my career was done. That was a bad motivation to go make that movie because I pulled in some really great uh, cast and I just didn't do right by them in that film, even though I loved the process of it. It was still compromising too much for the budget. But we did it. And at the end of that, um, I was in Mexico on our last two nights of shooting. And the producer for the Counterpunch project calls me, says, where are you? I said, I'm in Mexico. He's like, I got the funding for Counterpunch now. You need to come and interview with these producers because they're interviewing directors from CAA and William Morris. And you know, all the big agencies. And I'm like, no, that's my movie, man. I wrote it. They're like, they're going to pay you for the script, but they don't want you to direct it. I'm like, that's bullshit. And he says, well, when can you get here? I go, I wrap in two days. I'll be there in two days. And um, I go, set up a meeting for Monday. I get back on Sunday. He's like, okay. So I tell my editor who was with me on set at the time, because he was cutting the movie as I was shooting. That was my normal process. I love to do that. Haven't had the uh, luxury of doing that. So I said, um, I told my editor, okay, stop what you're doing. He's like, what? I go, stop editing. I need you to cut me a trailer. He's like, why? I go, because our next gig is going to be based on how good that trailer is. 
He's all serious. I said, yeah. I go, you're coming with me on that one. I go, but I need you to cut it and you have 24 hours. He's like, oh, okay. So he's like cutting the trailer and he's not working on the movie. So my producer on that film is telling <laughs> me, why isn't the editor working on the movie? He's working on a trailer already. I go, well, I would like the cast to see what, you know, how the thing's coming together and so they feel good about what we're doing. And he's like, yeah, but we're losing time and money. And I said, yeah, I know, but just let, it, let us, he's, he's almost done. Just let him finish the trailer. And then he'll get back to editing. So, okay, cool. So he spends like two days on this trailer and my producer's pissed. And we get into the room and he's like, I need to have a meeting with you. I go, okay, just a second. I bring the whole cast in. We're like, we, have, we own this, we're in this hotel and bring all the whole cast and crew in there. I go, Steven, play the tra trailer. Plays the trailer and everyone just loses it. The trailer just nails everything I'm trying to do with this movie. And my producer's very happy. <laughs> so he's like, okay, no worries. So I get back on Monday, I have that trailer with me, and the producer, she's Hungarian, very tough. She's a dear friend of mine now. She's a very tough Hungarian woman, and I'm sitting in front of me. She's like, so why, do, why am I meeting with you? You're not with CAA, you're not with William Morris, you're not with this, you're not with that. Why am I even talking to you? We're gonna pay you as a writer. Why do you think you should direct this? And I said, well, I just shot this film I got back from. I'd love for you to see the trailer of it. What do you mean you just shot it? I go, I just wrapped yesterday. She's like, yesterday, Sunday? I said, yes. And you have a trailer already? I said, yes. Let me see. So I turn around. <laughs> She's watching the trailer and I just... She like folds my laptop down. She looks at me. She's like, okay. I go, thank you. Appreciate your time. <laughs> oh, wow. And... Uh, she had another partner, actually, and then she had called me and said, I need to speak to my partner first. I said, sure, no problem. It was like a five-minute conversation after that, and I got that gig. So I got that right after I got back from... So I was in post-production on my fourth and in pre-production on my fifth, and that was my best year, man. It was just movie-making nonstop. And uh, yeah, it was great, and that the fifth one... They both got distribution. The fifth one got picked up by uh, Lionsgate and was on Netflix. It's actually, I just got word that it's making its China debut. This movie came oh, out five wow. years ago. It's making its China debut in October and its UK debut just last month. So that movie has still got legs. It's a boxing film, it's a genre film. So those films kind of, they can go a little bit, they go longer, they have a long shelf life. Um, so that was my, my, my worst and best years back to back. And those two in themselves would be a book, but I managed to keep them to two chapters. So <laughs> two very long chapters, but. What was your takeaway of all that? Like just from having those back to back? Time. I didn't have time to think about anything. Uh, you know, my, I just didn't have time to think about it. I just felt like I've been through the worst of it. And I got two more opportunities to do something. And then, of course, after Counterpunch, we screened Counterpunch. My producers from the fourth were like, now we, we got something. Do you have something for your six? I said, yes. And, and then shot that one in March of 2012. You know, So it's all started kind of that. Those relationships started because I, I, I was building something with them. At least I thought I was building something with them, which was a troop of actors and everything else. And then it just started to rot from the inside out. And um, I had to walk away from all of that, everything I had built, because people had cheapened the entire thing for their own gain and for their own narcissism. And so since then, you know, I started over, that's when I started Marigold. 
And Marigold was like, I'm gonna do something that nobody can copy. But some people tried to copy that as well. <laughs> so, um, but that movie hasn't, uh, I haven't put that one out there as much because I don't need to. Uh, I'm gonna wait until I can, I can put it somewhere where people will see it. I'm in no hurry. I've got other things I'm writing. I have six films out there. I have an incredible reel. I don't need to just put it out there just to put it out there. I love it too much to just stream it on Amazon for, you know, what it, you know, anybody can do that. That's not distribution. You know, I want it on Netflix. That's where I want it. I'm not even looking at a theatrical. I'm looking at just Netflix, you know. So I'm gonna hang on to it. When did you start writing it? Which one? Uh, Marigold. I didn't write anything. It's completely ah, unscripted. Okay. Yeah, I so mean, that one I would say is an outline. I outline, I would come up with scenarios and characters and I would communicate those things to the actors, but they didn't have a script. It's improv, okay. Yeah, so I, I, I prefer unscripted only because it sounds like there wasn't a plan. There was a plan and there was a vision. Um, we just weren't confined to uh, dialogue. And um, it was really a, a tenuous job for my editor. Um, and she was a new editor that I, I found. I love her to death because she found the story and she crafted the story and stayed with, she stayed with me with that movie for a good two years. And now she's working on bigger and better things. So I'm real excited for her as well. So um, I'm a training ground for <laughs> people who are gonna move on to bigger and better things. One thing in my book I said, you know, one thing I kept reading um, from industry insiders, and it bothers me every time, <laughs> is there are three things to success, and that's be kind, be humble, and help other people succeed. If you do those three things, you're going to succeed in our business. And I just think that's such bullshit. Because I'm like, if those are the three things, that's what you use to get into the business, then your journey wasn't very difficult. I go, because my experience has taught me that when I've been kind, I get taken advantage of. True. When I'm humble, people don't take me seriously as a filmmaker. Mm -hmm. And when I try to help other people, they end up just stepping, using you as a stepping stone. Very true. Um, I'm not saying those are three things you should be in life, but in this business, if you're starting from nothing, you're gonna have a very hard time in this business. But these are all people that are, kind of had a foot in the door, you know what I mean? Yeah. That say these things. And when you already have a foot in the door, well, those things will be valuable to you because maybe everyone's used to dealing with an asshole, but you're already somebody, you know? And one of the, it's an agent blog that I follow, but I called him out on that. He didn't respond, but <laughs> I was just kind of like, I go, your last name is a famous last name. You're the mm -hmm. son of a famous a agent. So you already have a door open to you. So yeah. being those three things, maybe that disarms people and they go, oh yeah, okay. But when you're successful already, absolutely that works because everyone goes, Oh wow, they're so kind, they're so humble, and they're helping other people. But you're already successful. It's easy, nothing, you're not gonna lose anything by being that. You know, and especially if most people are used to assholes in those positions. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, I'm going out. Uh, yeah, that's track, fine, but, but I, I do agree with you. I think in life, those are good rules. Great rules. I, th I, think, I think in this business, mm -mm. if you're gonna help somebody, you do it because you wanna do it. But yeah, there's not, I don't know. Yeah. That could be a whole it's, other, it's, it's, that could be a whole yeah. other workshop. <laughs> and I think that people that would disagree and say that's being too negative, I think a lot of them probably haven't that been through a lot. They're yeah. naive in a, in a negative way in terms of the business. Right. If you want to do the right thing and you want to keep your word, I think that's great. What about in search of fairness? 
in this business and thinking that everyone's going to play that way? <laughs> well, I would say this, like whatever it is that you're doing, if you're a writer, an actor, director, there is the discipline and the craft of doing those things and learning those things and constantly learning. But it's also looking and learning and paying attention to this as a business. Um, not in the sense that it will get you jaded, but to give you some type, don't go in naive. You know, it is a business, that's number one. You know, I've gotten into major discussions with distributors over my posters because they weren't artistic enough and I wanted an artistic poster, but they just want to put Danny Trejo on the cover because that's what's gonna sell. And they're gonna, that's what they do, right? So I have to kind of let that, let them do what they do. They let me do what I do, which was make the movie. But there is no, there is no fairness in this business. There isn't, and you can't, you have, if you understand that going in, then you can, I think, deal with it a lot better. But if you go in thinking it's something's gonna make sense, or your journey's gonna make sense, or it's going to be fair, or the outcome's gonna be fair, you're gonna have a very difficult time. Um, because there's, there, there's nothing fair. You know, I, I know actors that have come out here and have been at it for 40 years, and are nev have never been a series regular. I have actors that have come out here, been out here 10 years, and are series regulars. Is that fair? No, but that's just the nature of the business. It attracts a lot of different people from all over the world that all have something to say. And that can actually be an empowering thing because to me, there's no one way to get in. If you took a panel of five filmmakers, they would each, let's say five very successful filmmakers, each of them would have a different way of how they got in. I don't think there are, are two, story, two stories that are the same of how people succeed in this business. You just have to find what your story is and commit to your journey and try not to make it like anybody else. But go in there with the understanding of how the business works to the best of your ability. And unfortunately, a lot of that experience comes through failure. And so you have to look at it that. You know, I always say, you know, the more no's I get, it gets me closer to a yes. That's a true, that's a pretty true statement. You know, there are some emails I've sent out that were not worded right when I reached out to a showrunner and it got back to me. And I'm like, you know what? I probably could have worded that better. Um, but that's a learning thing. I didn't look at it as a negative. I looked at it as, okay, well, maybe I shouldn't have asked for that or maybe I shouldn't have worded it that way or maybe I shouldn't have reached out directly to that person. Um, but I don't know that there's any, short of just being a complete douchebag in this business, I don't know that there are any little mistakes that you're gonna make that are gonna be so detrimental to your career. I've made a ton. It hasn't kept me from, from, from producing, writing, and directing because it's so democratized now. You can shoot one on your phone and you can learn how to shoot one on your phone. <laughs> you know what I mean? So it's like you don't know how you can look it up. How do I make a movie? How do I make a short film? Um, so you gotta be constantly reading and researching and, and you gotta love it, even the warts, you know? Because if you don't, it's just eat you. It'll eat you. I've seen it happen to people and it's not, it's not uh, to good people because they were so uh, eaten, eaten alive at the fact that it's not fair. This isn't fair. I did all this work and I sacrificed so much. This isn't fair. Why did their movie get here and mine didn't? So if someone's in that loop, it's late at night, it's early morning, they're waking up, they're like, you know what, this isn't fair, but if I stop, I don't get to do X, Y, or Z, and I may not get a laurel, and I may not get uh, this publication to pick me as their new top 25 mm -hmm. 
for the year. Right. But, <laughs> but yeah, it's funny you right because I'm I'm not that guy. I've never been that guy that's gotten a top twenty five list. I'm not the guy that's you know the film festival guy. But I am the guy that's written and directed several feature films. That's the guy I want to be. You know, so those are goals and interesting goals. But if if you have a short film and you're going all over the world, like. You know, a friend of mine was a filmmaker who went to film school, had an award-winning short, and decided he wanted to go to AFI because he thought he would make more connections that way. I go, you already know how to make a movie. Why are you going to go and spend $100,000 to go to AFI? Well, I'll meet connections that way. And I'm like, that's no guarantee, man. Yeah, you'll meet some people, but don't you think everybody's going for that reason? And I go, just make something. You know, I go, how much money did you spend going all over the world with your film? He said, well, we won a ton of awards. I go, yeah, but didn't get you the next project. I go, I would have taken all that money and made something with it. You know, so um, it depends what your priority is. I think if you're ego-driven, you know, maybe that's what drives you. I don't know. I'm just not that person. I'm driven by storytelling, pure and simple. I'm not a multi-hyphenate either. I, I say writer-director so people have some type of perspective in terms of what I do, but essentially I just see myself as a storyteller. And um, I'm using tools that I have at my disposal to tell the stories that I want to tell. And that's what drives me. None of the other stuff does. All the other stuff would be great. You know, my very simple goal is just to make a living as a writer-director. That doesn't necessarily mean going to Sundance. It doesn't necessarily mean uh, being rich and successful. It just means making a living as a writer-director. That's an attainable goal. Everything else, if that happens, that's all gravy. But an attainable goal for me is that. You know, at your first time out, you're expecting, you know, Look around, pay attention. I'm looking at, you know, the hardest thing with Marigold and Matador was I was making an undistributable film and I knew it. It wasn't my first film, it was my seventh and I knew it was undistributable. And having to keep going because the itch would not go away on telling this story was very difficult. Whereas if I had the naivety of a first time filmmaker, would have plowed right through that, right? Because I'm making my first film, but I'm making my seventh and I'm broke and I'm going, why am I doing this? It's just something I have to do. Why was it undistributable? Um, for many reasons. I mean, just going from off my experience, it's, you know, it's about a single woman. There's a, a homeless character in it. It's a schizophrenic. And it's like a coming-of-age story of this young girl. It's an all-Latin cast. It takes place in L.A. in what I call the real L.A. Um, I just, no stars are in it. Um, Camila Banus is in it. She's an amazing actress. She's on Days of Our Lives, but she's so good. She was so gracious to be a part of that project. That was my second time working with her. Um, I just didn't, knowing the experience I had and what distributors say, I just didn't feel like it was going to find a buyer. At least not right now. Maybe later down the line, they will be. You know, we'll see. When Cuaron's movie came out, Roma, I thought, it's very much shot in that vein, not to that, you know, that brilliance, obviously. But um, there was a, a great movie about a story about a woman that wasn't a star and everything else and did pretty well, I think. So um, who knows? But again, I don't have the, the machine behind me. So I just have to sit and wait on that one. 